Feeling sick and have to miss class but worried about your grades dropping? Olivia Cohen has you covered with her report of Dr. Kim's semi-annual Let's Chat Q&A session. Then, reporter Robin Souza speaks about the importance of low art in her piece, Columbia Community and Professionals Artists Create Bad Art for Showcase, as well as how the pieces were chosen, what low art is, and her personal favorites from the exhibit. Lastly, reporter Jordan Perkins talks to us today about Unaccompanied, where pictures of crafts such as pinatas of cartoon characters, beaded bracelets, and more are displayed on the walls in a campus exhibition by Jonathan Michael Castillo, a 2019 photography alum and adjunct faculty member. With me is Olivia, one of the reporters who covered Dr. Kim's Let's Chat Q&A session. Let's Chat is hosted by the Columbia Student Government Association as a way for students' voices to be heard by the administration. Thanks for being here, Olivia. Hey, Nathan. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. Uh, this was your first time covering an event like this, is that right? Yes, it was. So how was that like for you? It was really interesting. So as you said, this was one of the first um, really important campus stories that I've been able to cover with the Chronicle, um, and especially since it was featuring Dr. Kim, it was, I held, felt like I had a very strong responsibility to report and cover it in an accurate way, and it was just really interesting to cover. Was this your first time ever interacting with Dr. Kim in such an, like, an, an intimate setting? Yeah, it was. It was. Now, I know there were a few key points from the Less Chat event. Some of those include tuition raise, students missing classes due to being sick and having grades drop, as well as institutional racism. But I feel like we should maybe try and tackle those one at a time. Sure. I know that the school is operating on a deficit and that Kim explained how COVID-19 is affecting the school. Could you summarize Kim's explanation of how the COVID-19 is affecting the school financially? Yeah, sure. So there's various reasons that the school is now seeing itself in a deficit. Um, so just starting from the beginning, I guess, uh, according to Kim in the conversation, 2019 was a very good year for the school. They had higher amounts of enrollment for freshmen, and I also believe he said just across the board in general. Um, even by like 500 students, I think, per grade. Um, but when COVID-19 hit, I think that really hindered the amount of students that were able to attend Columbia because of various financial hardships that either they or their families have faced. Um, and it also increased how many students were applying and needing scholarships, grants, loans, et cetera, um, in order to attend school and stay on campus and everything that really comes with being a student at Columbia. So I think those things together just really contributed to where the school finds itself now and its deficit. Now, did Kim explain if this deficit and the school's financial situation, did he explain how that would be affecting students or if it would be at all? Yeah, so in the meeting, he really said that it would not be affecting students, at least at this time. Um, but I think in some ways it already has because there's a lot of programs that have been cut at Columbia, which I think it, lower enrollment uh, this year at Columbia kind of works hand in hand with the programs that have closed, in my opinion, because enrollment is down overall at the institution, um, but also with various programs either shutting down, being paused, or merging with other programs such as uh, the pause of Frequency TV or like the merging television department. Um, and just other programs like that, I think it kind of is a two-way street with students not choosing Columbia 
again because their programs don't exist anymore. So I think those kind of work in tandem. No, exactly. And I know that Dr. Kim also mentioned that a drop-in enrollment isn't exactly a unique issue to Columbia, that it's a kind of a college-wide thing. Yeah, it is. Well, I think in general, there's been a drop of enrollment, especially with COVID-19, because lots of students are postponing uh, just going to college, earning degrees. um, And yeah. Great. Well, I guess we can move on to the second uh, part, which was students that were worried about their grades dropping due to missing classes. Mm -hmm. Now, I know that the provost, I know that she mentioned a bit about what students could do to try and combat that, as well as advice she gave to teachers. Could you explain a bit about what she said? Yeah, sure. So during this portion of the Let's Chat session with Dr. Kim, um, Provost Marcella David was actually brought up on stage to discuss this issue because um, I believe the vice president of Columbia's student organization, Olivia Porto, brought up the question of how should students navigate coming back to class after being sick because she had the experience of being sick for a week and having her grades grades drop as a result. Um, So pretty much provost just said that first the Columbia administration and provost department are working with faculty sending out emails about not having in her words hard fast rules um, regarding uh, students attendance turning in work on time and just trying to be extra lenient with students when they talk to teachers about being sick whether with COVID or just general sickness Um, But they also said that it's a two-way street for this issue because students should also be reaching out to their professors and advocating for themselves. Um, Yeah. I really liked uh, Olivia's Porto's uh, solution about contacting student relations and how uh, she mentioned that her grades dropped and that she, because she was sick, and so she messaged her uh, email to professors saying, I I can't go to class. And her grades dropped, and but she contacted student relations, and they were able to kind of bring her grades back up. I think that's a great resource. Now, let's move on to the question about institutional racism. I know Kim was put on the spot a bit with that question. Um, could you explain a bit about that? Yeah, so that portion of the event itself, like you said, it was kind of a tricky topic just because that was that topic was raised by a student who was concerned about a film that he saw in one of his uh, cinema film classes that didn't have enough representation of just diversity within the film. And the teacher or the professor in that class was praising the film for whatever it might be, the artistic vision, the whatever it is. Um, But that this particular student considered it racist because it did not have the diversity that should be in films, especially with Columbia talking about diversity, equity, and inclusion, just as an institution. Um, yeah, so in terms of Dr. Kim addressing that question, he said during the session that not only the institution, but he is working like crazy to bring about change at Columbia. Um, but he also said the quote that Columbia is riddled with the residue and reality of institutional racism which I personally thought was interesting Interesting, yeah because I feel like that implies that Columbia is no better than any place else right well 
did Dr. Kim, I mean, you mentioned that Dr. Kim said that they're working like crazy to try to to address the diversity problem. Did he mention any specifics as, as to how they're working like crazy? Yeah, that's interesting. So another part of what made that answer on behalf of Dr. Kim kind of kind of hard to answer is because he nor the other administrators that were in the meeting gave any concrete, solid steps that they are working on to ensure diversity, equity, and inclusion at Columbia or how to dismantle institutional racism as an institution. So there really wasn't anything concrete or solid answers that he gave uh, in response to the student. It was more so just saying we are working to combat these issues and that Columbia doesn't want to be a school that just talks about being diverse. They actually want to walk their talk and be a diverse school. I agree. Uh, I feel like at times the answers weren't as direct as I felt like they could have been. I know that while listening to the recordings, some of the answers were like two to three minutes long. And so mm-hmm. when you're answering a question that long, it, it can be sometimes you can lose people along the way sometimes. And I know at times I felt that way. Uh, how did you feel personally about the event? I mean, would you consider recovering? Uh, would you consider reporting? on an event like this in the future? And do you also feel like this event is worth students' time to go to? Do, do, do you feel like you walked out of there yeah. w- knowing more? Or? Yeah, absolutely. So there's kind of two parts to that question, I guess. Um, first, I would recommend that anybody goes to these events because I think, obviously, as a reporter and just a, a student, a part of the Columbia community, I think it's very important to know what's going on in your community, on campus, in the city, wherever it might be, whatever it's important to you. Um, I think that's important in general. Um, but in terms of the answers he gave, when I was talking to other students as they were filtering out of the event, um, I asked the same student who asked Dr. Kim the question about institutional racism at Columbia. I said, were you satisfied with his answer? And he kind of laughed at the question and said, I think it's more than just rhetoric, but implied that he was not necessarily fulfilled with his answer. So I think that kind of goes to show how students feel about these sessions. I think students feel like they're worth attending because there were quite a few of students. Like the the auditorium that it was held in was pretty full, whether it was GSA, students there to ask questions or just uh, watch the event go on. Um, But I think, as you said, there was a lot of going around the questions instead of answering them directly. So I think it's kind of a mixed bag on that one. This is an annual event, right? Yes, I actually think it's semi-annual. Semi-annual, yeah, so like I believe twice so. a year? Or? Yeah, I think once a semester, I Oh, think. awesome. Yeah. Okay. Well, all right. Well, that's it for me. Thanks so much for coming in today. Yeah, thank you so much. This week, we speak to reporter Robin Suzas on her piece, Columbia Community and Professional Artists Create Bad Art for Showcase. Located throughout Columbia College Chicago's library on 624 South Michigan Avenue is exhibit Bad Art, Kish, Camp, and Craft. The exhibit is part of Columbia's Aesthetic of Research program series, which was founded in 2014 by co-creators Christy Bowen and Jennifer Sauzer, head of Accessible Services and Assessment in the library. Both Bowen and Sauzer curated the Bad Art exhibit. With pieces varying from recycled materials, religious art, and other pieces pushing boundaries of what is determined to be good and bad art. Thanks for coming on the show today, Robin. Oh, you're welcome. Happy to be here. I just wanted to ask you a few questions about your piece. And I was wondering, how did you learn about the exhibit? What drew you to cover this piece? So 
I saw an advertisement on one of the Columbia College web pages for events, and that's how I found out about it. And what drew me to the piece was the title, Bad Art, and the words black velvet painting, because I was thinking in my mind, you know, those <laughs> black velvet paintings or, or carpets of dogs, you know, playing pool and smoking cigars, and I really wanted to see something like that. And, you know, the words kitsch, camp, and craft, I didn't know what those meant. I had heard them before, and that's what drew me to it. Needless to say, I found out I was kind of ignorant about what bad art really meant. How were the art pieces chosen for the exhibit? So Christy Bone and Jennifer Souser, who you mentioned earlier, the co-curators, they put out submissions calling for art in the bad art or low art categories. And they got them, they got pieces, they ultimately, pardon me, ended up choosing pieces um, from students at the Art Institute Chicago. And there's one piece from a Columbia College art student. Her name is Anna Bachman. And that's how they chose their pieces. I know you said earlier that uh, you didn't really know what bad art was. When you covered this piece and went to the exhibit, what did you learn um, what that definition meant? So, yeah, it, it's pretty interesting. At least I think it is. Um, so there's high art and low art. High art is art made by elite artists. They received education. We're talking money, 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 and it's about aesthetics. High art draws an emotional response. Low art is art made, sometimes mass-produced for the masses, and it's deemed to be unimportant because of that. And it's utilitarian in the sense that it tends to be functional and you can use it like mugs, you know, things like that. What art pieces uh, stood out to you the most at the exhibit? Or what were some of your favorite pieces that you saw? Oh, man. Um, I really liked skid marks because that's a perfect example of kitsch. You know, kitsch is, can be kind of in poor taste, but it's almost always, well, not always, but in this case, it's sending a message. There's an irony to it. You know, it's by Christopher Shoup, I believe the artist's name is, and it's pairs of underwear, men's underwear, hung by hangers, wire hangers, and he's got literally like a thunderbolt pattern, but duplicative, you know, two of them on a pair of underwear or curvilinear lines, you know, parallel to one another. Of course, they're brown because it's skid marks, you know, and he's also got placards that talk about what he's trying to convey. But, you know, overall, to me, when you think about it, some people might go, oh, gross, you know, but to me, I don't care who you are today, what your political affiliation is, you know. I mean, I would argue that all of us think that what's going on today is, you know, excrement, let's just say. And I think that might be the message he's trying to convey. So here you have this piece, you know, that some people might find offensive, but it really actually means something that everybody could agree with. That's my opinion anyway. 
Yeah, I was looking at um some of the pieces in the exhibit and just kind of speaking on uh, low art. I feel like a low art um kind of like speaks to the masses or speaks to kind of just the average person and it can be relatable or they can just kind of see themselves within the art or just something of the sort. And I think that's a very important thing to have. And uh, speaking on that, what are the effects of there being more accessible art to the public? How do you feel like that um, impacts the way we digest and understand art? Well, starting with high art, I think when you think about it, you have to go to the Art Institute, let's say here in Chicago, you know, to see so-called high art. Again, you're talking money. The pathway there is money. A ton of education. But the reality is for us regular people, you're paying 20, 25 bucks just to put your foot in the door. So is it that accessible? You know what I mean? Low art, like I said, it could be pottery. It could be jewelry. It could be masonry. It could be all kinds of different things. And I feel that that's way more accessible, as you pointed out. And it's more fun, it's more relaxed, it's not as structured. You know, that's what I think about that. That's the distinction between the two. Some could argue there's a class distinction there. But then again, the internet came along, and I feel like those lines are blurring now. And I know in the article they were speaking about how what's good art and bad art can be subjective. And I know you were speaking about how you like the skid marks art. How do you think um, in that certain exhibit that bad art is subjective? Subjective in what sense? Just in the sense of like what is actually good and bad art? Like how can people make that distinction? Is there an actual distinction? Yeah, the distinction is, again, um, well, I don't know. You know, and that's that's the point of the exhibit. Christy Bone and Jennifer Souser said, the point of this exhibit is the question, is there a distinction between the two? Personally, I don't feel that there is. You know, I mean, look at, for example, you, you think about Jean-Paul Basquiat, who came from the streets of New York. You know, and all of a sudden he's discovered by Andy Warhol and his paintings are selling for millions and millions of dollars. And what Jennifer said that I really found interesting, maybe there's this distinction, maybe this is an example of a distinction, is that you'll see something like that, you know, but you almost never see artists of a certain magnitude or importance trying to do art in the street. You just don't see it going the other way. So I guess in today's world, that's the distinction, you know? The exhibit opened on October 15th and runs through January 15th, 2022. Thank you so much again, Robin, for coming on the show. Oh, you're welcome. I had fun. Pictures of crafts, such as pinatas of cartoon characters, beaded bracelets, and more, are displayed on the walls at Unaccompanied, which is an on-campus exhibition by Jonathan Michael Castillo a 2019 photography alum and adjunct faculty member. All of these photos of objects are meant to give you a glimpse into the lives of children at the Heartland Alliance Shelter. With us today to talk about Unaccompanied is Chronicle staff reporter Jordan Perkins. Welcome, Jordan. Hi, thank you. Now, I know the exhibition was funded by the Diane Damier 
Columbia Fellowship Program in Photographic Arts and Social Issues, and shows images of the Heartland Alliance Children's Shelters in Chicago. Could you tell me a bit about Heartland Alliance? Yeah, so Heartland Alliance is like a nonprofit human rights organization, and they do a lot of different things. They have a lot of different shelters, not just children's shelters that I'm aware of. And um, yeah, so yeah, so they just mainly do that stuff. And I was talking to Castillo about these shelters and stuff, and he just kind of talked about how a lot of the employees were immigrants. So it's basically immigrants helping immigrants. And yeah. Now, I've, Jordan, I find the exhibit extremely interesting because I know that Castillo had to tell a story about kids and human rights without actually taking a photo of anyone. Now, I know that in photojournalism, that is quite unusual. I mean, it's not unheard of, but it's definitely more challenging. Uh, were there any particular photos at the exhibit that made you feel connected to a particular unknown child? And did you, did you walk out of there feeling like you knew a bit more about someone? I was going to say, when I walked through the exhibit, um, I would say that a few of the photos definitely kind of stuck out to me as like interesting and stuff because there was one specific photo I think um I mean they were mainly just photos of the shelter in general and like different areas but like seeing some of like the children's rooms and stuff that definitely kind of resonated with me and then I think just with the accompanying pictures of like crafts and stuff that was kind of impactful because I think oh no but um yeah I was gonna say a lot of them did. I can't really pick out a specific one, but it was just overall powerful. And um, I feel like there was kind of a connection, I guess, with seeing like the different things that they made and stuff, because it's like they're just like kids here. They're still getting to do different things, like even though that even though they've arrived here by themselves, you know. Well, I know you mentioned it was a powerful and, you know, with with the rooms, I feel like rooms are such an intimate an intimate part of someone's life. You know, if you look into someone's room, you, you can learn so much more about them. Do you remember any particular photos of the children's rooms that, could you just describe a few photos? Yeah, so I remember seeing one. Um, it was a teenage girl's room, and there were actually, like, photos of like her like sonograms because she was a um she's pregnant and that just I don't know that really stuck out to me because like you think about because I remember he was talking about like when he didn't include like children in the photos and stuff because they were like vulnerable populations and I just thought about like her that girl in particular being a vulnerable um being a part of that vulnerable population at a shelter Yeah. yeah that was that was powerful yeah and well, impactful. Yeah, that was interesting to see. No, I know the main focus of the exhibit is uh, children coming unaccompanied mm-hmm. without their parents. Mm-hmm. Can you explain more a bit about that? Because that sounded a bit confusing to me. Yeah, so I believe that these children, because I do know that like with most children that arrive to the country by themselves, they're um, after I think a certain amount of time, they're picked up by the Department of Health and Human Services. And I'm pretty sure through like paperwork and stuff, they're transferred to a shelter for a while just for that kind of thing. Yeah. Do you 
had to take a photo to describe who you are as a person without showing yourself in it, what would that photo show? Hmm. Um, I think it would show. Hmm. I would say it would definitely show like a lot of the things I do for work. So definitely like my reporter's notebook, because um, I take that with me, my laptop. I'm always on that. Um, I'm trying to think. But um, yeah, I was going to say definitely things that like kind of represent me and like where I'm at at this moment with like working hard and like reporting. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. For me, I believe it would be the same. It would be my phone, my laptop, my notebooks, my books, mm -hmm. my cat, my water bottle. And that's about it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Now, I know you talked with Matt Mortar, the Senior Exhibition Coordinator for the Department of Exhibitions, Performances, and Student Spaces, and I know he said the team focuses on featuring exhibitions that raise awareness of current issues in the country. Now, that kind of brings me to a question. Not sure if you have the exact answer, mm -hmm. but the question is, how big of an occurrence is children arriving in the country by themselves? And how many children are usually at the shelter? Yeah, I was going to say, I didn't get much detail about that. Um, I do know that I did see do some reading while um, working on this article. And I did see that it, the um, arrival of children, unaccompanied minors was kind of low at some point. But I think around February it spiked. I can't remember the exact numbers. But as far as the Heartland Alliance shelters go, um, I think they might they might have seen a lot more children in their shelters specifically because of like COVID restrictions. I think maybe like going like kind of, um, what's the word I want to use? Easing up a little. Hmm. But um, I remember when I was talking to Jonathan, he said that there weren't many children in some of those shelters he was in when he was photographing. I think he said in one, there's about seven kids, but that was during COVID, during the Just pandemic. Just seven at the shelter in total? Seven, yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's not that many. Mm, not at all, yeah. For people who haven't heard of the exhibition or who haven't gone, how would you, how would you describe the experience and would you recommend them to go to this exhibition un unaccompanied? Oh, yeah, I definitely recommend going, uh, mainly just because I love seeing different exhibitions, like especially seeing what people do on campus and like their works and stuff. But um, I definitely tell them to go see it just to see like just how just how children who are coming here by themselves are living and like um, uh, I'm trying to look for a specific word. But yeah, um, I'd just say that it was very powerful and gives a glimpse into like what the immigration system is like. And I remember Jonathan was saying that he also that he hoped that people would see that there are different motivations for why people are coming into the country and the experience just isn't monolithic. I think I cited that in my article, but mm -hmm. yeah, definitely, because it definitely gave a glimpse into like a different side of the immigration experience. Now, Jordan, I know you mentioned this exhibit was on campus. Mm -hmm. So the exhibit is located at the C33 Gallery at 33 East Ida B. Wells Drive. Yes. Now, mm -hmm. how much, when is the exhibit open to and how much is, uh, is there an entrance fee? 
Um, so the exhibit, yes, the exhibit is at the 33 East Ida B. Wells building. Um, it's free to get in. Um, you just need proof of vaccination or a negative COVID test. But um, for students, you just need your ID since it's just in our campus. So. Great, great. Well, I'm going to have to go take a look later today. All right. Sounds exciting. <laughs> I recommend it. <laughs> well, thanks so much for coming on today, Jordan. Yes, thank you for having me. This was the Chronicle Headlines. I'm your host, Nathan Serkin. And I'm Amherst Edwards. And, and we'll, we'll see, see you next time. time.